This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we're going to have one of those wonderful adventures that we so enjoy going to strange places and exploring strange things. But this time, it's a strange and wonderful place. And I don't know one of our guests, but the other one I do know is strange and wonderful in his, his own right, Graham Phillips. He is the author of 20 books uh, concerning historical mysteries. He lives in Birmingham in central England, one of the world's centers of mysteries, central England. Uh, our other guest is new to the show. Jody Russell is a historical researcher and investigator of paranormal phenomena. She lives in Los Angeles. So right now, as we are recording this, Jody is in a heat dome and Graham isn't, and neither <laughs> am I. So two of us are cool as cucumbers in the third one. Oh dear. Okay. So I'd like to introduce now and bring on my two guests. We're going to be talking, there we are, about their book, Strange Fate, an extraordinary true story of paranormal discovery. And boy, is it ever extraordinary. And it's definitely a true story. So welcome, both of you, to Dreamland. I'm so happy to have you here. Oh, thank you so much. Good. We have a lot of fun this morning, and no question about that. All right. Strange Fate. Uh, and either one of you can answer these questions. Um, what um, drew you in the first place to do this? To Graham, why don't you start with this? Because I think you were the instigator of the process of the program. Or, or was it you, Jody? Uh, which one of you sort of came on this whole story first? I think it was both of us, Graham. But but Graham is actually was the one that was more interested in the me and I at the time. Correct, Graham? Yeah, I uh, I've been investigating this strange secret society that existed in the Victorian period, that was centered on a big old Victorian mansion called Bidolf Grange, which is not too far from where I live in central England, but it's up in the moorlands and. Uh, rather windswept hillsides of the northern midlands of England. And basically, it was a really strange story because what the people who lived there in the mid-19th century said was that, well, to start off with, there was a man called James Bateman, and he owned the house and his family lived there. He was in business with a man called Robert Heath, who lived a couple of miles away. They were both rich industrialists. And James Bateman found on the north part of his land an old um, tomb that was, you know, a good few thousand years old. And it was a big mound. And he had a cousin called Thomas Bateman. He wanted to in, him to excavate it. And the Bateman family and the Heath family were both there when it was excavated in May of 1851. While they were doing it, Robert Heath's little daughter, Mary, who was only seven at the time, kind of got away from the crowd of people and clambered into a hole that they'd cut in the side of the mound to get through to the burial chamber and was the first inside. And 
she came out different. She claimed that when she was in there, she'd seen a strange world with fairy beings and all sorts of things. But what was most remarkable is she came out and suddenly appeared to have psychic abilities that she didn't have before. She started telling people things about themselves that they couldn't have, that she couldn't have known. But more than this, she also, when she was in the tomb, she dug down a little bit in a place that she knew she had to in her mind somehow and found a small stone about two inches by two inches cut into the shape of a heart made of rose quartz. And she said this, this had been there for years and it was very important. And she eventually uh, proved that she had gained these psychic abilities by taking the families to a nearby ruined chapel told them to dig in a corner of the church and they would find a uh, long forgotten crypt. And it was there. That's how it started. And I really wanted to investigate how, well, how did this course. happen? And what was it all and about? This, this, this was back in the 1850s. That's right. Uh, hmm. Tell us about the grain, uh, uh, the place now, Budolf Grange, because I, I looked it up on the internet. It looks like an absolutely magnificent and beautiful place uh jody as the historical researcher perhaps you can enlighten us a little bit about the grange itself oh the grange is is absolutely stunning it's uh, and as a gardener and a, and a rancher myself um i know how difficult it is to get to things growing but this was established by um the bateman family uh with all these during the victorian era he would travel all over and collect samplings from around the world and created these gardens and it's just absolutely extraordinary it's now open to the public which it only just became so like in the 1980s is that right graham yeah that's right yeah and what they've done is they made all of these mock temples they have an egyptian temple they have a, a chinese temple a celtic glen and that's what we discovered they were doing rituals which they called fates at the time um these ceremonies there that were part of this Mianaya group, this, um, this yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll the d d discussion of the group, yeah, in a little while. Now, what what happened to the Grange in the as the 19th century came to the end and end? Hmm. Well, yeah. what happened was that uh, they built all these shrines, and it was little Mary that had basically first started telling them to do it a seven-year-old girl the lady mm -hmm. of the grange who was named maria bateman whose husband was the owner um she started this this group called the order of me and I, a group mainly of women who were interested in the paranormal the new um, craze of spiritualism mysticism and all this and she built these temples that Jodie had mentioned in the grounds of the Grange in amongst all these uh, wonderful gardens that her husband had created. And um, there they were going to carry out these strange uh, meditational exercises, rituals from ancient Egypt and from ancient China and ancient Rome, different cultures to try and according to what they wrote, they were trying to change fate, trying to change circumstances in the world for the better. Ultimately, you ask what happened to them at the end of the 19th century. In the late 19th, the late, late 19, uh, 1890s, 
the place burnt down and um, a lot of it burnt down. Some of it still survived, but all the objects, the the, the ritual uh, accoutrements that they gathered from around the world, plus many of their writings uh, perished in the flames and the group basically disbanded. Now, this is, I, of course, have read the book and I thought that this was an important event because they were trying to basically use what amounts to what we now call white magic to, to improve the state of the world. And then all of their, everything they had built to use to do this is destroyed in a fire whereupon the 20th century, by far the most awful century in the history of mankind, Although I think the 21st is going to be pretty difficult too. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, begins. And within a few years, millions upon millions of young men are being fed to machine guns. It's as if the dark side won. It does certainly seem like that. But what appears to have been their intention wasn't to bring world peace all the women that were involved in this were members of the original early first wave feminist groups they were all feminists famous feminists now when they started this group in the 1850s the lot of women in the western world and in britain america and elsewhere was awful uh, women didn't have the right to uh, own their own property. They couldn't inherit property. It all went to the husband, guardian, or brother, or father. Um, they couldn't start their own businesses. They had absolutely no rights at all. Husbands were even allowed to beat their wives within reason, supposedly. <laughs> and this was all over the place in the Western world. Now, yes. they wanted to change things. And during the period that they were operating between then and the 1890s, Vast amounts of things changed. Women suddenly got the right to own property here, the states, elsewhere, uh, various places throughout the world. They got the right to inherit. They got the right to start their own businesses, and many did, and many more things like this. So I think when it and, and by the end of it, they were getting the vote. Now this required women had got no say. They weren't allowed in government in any form at all, or they weren't represented. But what happened was that men suddenly started saying, no, let's start giving women these rights. It took men in parliaments and Congress and the states and, and, and throughout yeah, Europe it was quite a fight. to actually change. Perhaps that's what they managed to achieve. But maybe the, maybe at the end they were trying to go further and change, bring about world peace and negativity stopped it. It just seems strange that, uh, as you say, after this fire, things started to get very bad for the yeah, world. It does yeah. seem strange. And uh, Jody, uh, let's talk about uh, a little bit of the history here. Uh, let's go back to Morgana and Morgan Le Fay. First, tell us what place she plays in the story and then who she was. I think that's Graham area of expertise because he, he's the Arthurian expert here. 
Okay, well, then I, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Uh, <laughs> and in order to enable me to collect my thoughts, folks, right. we're going to take a little break. We're going to but be. Yeah, he's got the Morgana. Yeah, go ahead, Grant. Yeah, it will. And when we come back, we're going to learn about some very ancient powers and something that has been lost to the modern world that once was probably among the most valuable of all human knowledge. We're back. We're talking to Graham Phillips and Jody Russell. I didn't see, and maybe I overlooked it, if there is a website connected with the book. Uh, I don't know. Yes, it is. It's strangefate.net. Strangefate.net, folks. Okay. Well, you can tell I haven't been to the website because I'm more of a reader than an internet. Right. Reader. We're getting used uh, to the social media part of things as well. We're also oh, on God, Facebook. I'll never get used to social media. Um, <laughs> I find it so <laughs> difficult. Um, uh, I enjoy my fans a lot and my friends on Facebook and Twitter and um, Instagram. Uh, but I'm... I find it frightening, the whole thing, because of its ability to, to make it seem as if what people wish was true was true. And that is the genesis of all of this horrible political mess that we're in, is because if politicians have followed the Hitler, the Hitler playbook, Hitler would go to his, um, and I promise, folks, I'll turn back to the sh story in a minute. He would go to a speech, and he would blare out at the beginning, and if you've listened to Hitler's speeches as I have, you'll find, you'll see him doing this, first one issue after another. And the one that got the most response would be the one he then concentrated on in the speech. And he he gradually created an atmosphere of nightmarish prejudice in Germany that led to the deaths of millions upon millions of people, including the Jews, of course. Um, nowadays, they use social media and they watch and see which tweets get the most clicks, which which uh, YouTube state things on YouTube get the most looks, light sites, and so forth. And they concentrate on that without regard to whether or not it's true. And we are, we're being destroyed by this. And I'm speaking out against it now. I'm, not, I'm purposely not speaking about any particular politicians because I'm not political and this isn't a political show. But that is a problem. Okay, I'm off my soapbox now. <laughs> now, let's, um, let's, let's talk a little bit, go back to... The beginning again to James Bateman and the the uh, beginning, really the beginning of the Grange. Uh, who was he, and how did he come there? Well, he 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 was um, a businessman. Well, his father had made a fortune in coal and iron, coal mining and ironworks. He was one of the new rich in the nineteenth century, and he bought where the Grange was. He brought, bought the property and all that was there was an old broken down uh, rectory, I think, at the time, but a lot of land 
and he built the Grange itself um, in the 1840s. And what was fascinating is when, after this little episode had happened, when Mary came out psychic and, and Maria Bateman, his wife, decided to start this group, James Bateman started traveling the world, um, collecting seeds and saplings and other uh, plants to ship back to England to go into his garden. And Maria was left in charge. She built these shrines, these temples in the garden, these mock Egyptian tombs and so forth. And um, what happened then was that James Bateman, he, he was away for most of the time. So he just it was just up to, to Maria to, to get on with what was happening. But what was fascinating is we discovered that each of these temples was built on earlier ancient stone circles and standing stones and mounds that dated from four, maybe even 5,000 years ago like this one particular tomb that little Mary had gone into. Now, let's talk now about Mary Heath. Uh, that's the little Mary you're referring to, isn't it? Yes. Um, tell us about her history and life a little bit. She, I mean, we know what she did when she was seven. Uh, and, um, it, it, and incidentally, is the stone, does the stone that she found still exist? Yes, it does. <laughs> I it's actually not. have it. It's right there. There it is. You have it. It's yeah. right here. <laughs> it's in the shape I'm of a so heart. I'm so glad I asked. Right? <laughs> How fascinating. This is why I wanted to be on the video part, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, we had the usual trouble at the beginning of the show, but it's yes, that was now, me. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that's it's nothing new. Um, yeah, we went in search of it following a series of clues. After the fire had burnt down the place, they decided to, to, to the group should be halted. Um, the lady who was in charge at that point was a, a quite a famous pre-Raphaelite model and painter called Jane Morris, the wife of William Morris, who designed the wallpaper that's still um, famous today. Um, Jane Morris hid that um, heart of the rose, which is their most prized possession, that somehow was said to have the power to alter fate. And they were channeling the energy from that, supposedly, through these temples and so forth. And uh, she hid this stone and left a whole series of um, clues, like in paintings, to where it was. Now, I'll probably come back to that later. But you asked about Mary Heath. When she grew up, she took over the Order of Meaniah. The Bateman family eventually sold the property to the Heath family, and she ended up running the place. By this time, women could run businesses because already things were beginning to change. And around 1870, she ran the Order of Me and I when she was in her 20s. But what's, what's fascinating is that as a child, she actually inspired the story of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, remember, she crawled into this little mound and, yes. and said, oh, there's all these creatures in there. Well, she was actually, she met, um, she met Lewis Carroll when she was young. Um, really? When the family went to stay with uh, a, a family that he was um, tutoring the children of. And she inspired not only the story of Alice in Wonderland, but also the story of Alice through the Looking Glass. And Jodie and I managed to track down what had happened to that Alice in Wonderland mirror and when we found it at a place called hall cross hall which is not actually that far from where i live um it's now a, a hotel and a spa resort well the 
when we got there, people said, well, you, Jody, you explain what happened when we found the mirror. Oh, it was, it, it was, it was mind blowing. I mean, it, it and then it, it, all of a sudden it was attached to a, a little girl. It was a ghost that was supposedly haunting that mirror. And they even described her as a little Victorian girl that looked like Alice in Wonderland. And we're like, what? <laughs> Graham? Yeah, well, there was one particular case. I'm, where, well, I'm one guy came, jaw. <laughs> Right. One guy we spoke to actually said that he came in there late one night and saw the little girl in the mirror kind of grinning at him like this. And he actually, she actually responded to him. Loads of other people claimed to have seen the ghost in the mirror. We thought, well, it can't be Mary Heath, even if she looked like Alice in Wonderland, because the pictures in, in Lewis Carroll's book, he, he designed himself and got a, a, a proper artist to copy them based on what the little girl who supposedly inspired his stories looked like. So we can assume that Mary Heath is a child, although we have no photographs of her because they all burned in the fire. Um, she may have looked like Alice in Wonderland, dressed, dressed in that way. And, um, well, put it this way, if she's in the mirror haunting it, well, she didn't die until she was 28 or 29. So what? what why is she haunting a mirror? Well, the only thing we could think is that somehow she was able to duplicate herself in the mirror, like the ancient Tibetans and Japanese Shinto believe that you can create what's called a tulpa, a thought form copy tulpa, of yourself yeah, in sure, the mirror. Of course. So but maybe no, that happened. Much. I remember looking into it once and got inspiration about where we should look next for in our search for that stone. And and you took a picture from that same angle where the little girl was seen in the mirror and we have a, an image of it looks like in the corner of a little girl even wearing the headband of alice a little blue bodice looking down and it looks identical to what was how he depicted uh how it was depicted in his drawings of lewis carroll it's, yeah, so no, a photograph no, of her. it's a photograph of her yeah yes it's a photograph taken of the mirror. That you we didn't notice that. anything at the time, but in the corner was what Jody said, a kind well, of we'll image that that appears to be a little girl. We can show that a blue headband and a blue bodice and long blonde hair. But Do you have that photo on your website, Graham? Is that on your website? Is that photo on your website? I can't remember. If not, we can post it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good. Oh, yeah, we should put it on the main site, yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's it's fabulously interesting. It's you should be more aware of the most interesting things about what you're doing. Well, so many things happen that it's kind of like I know it. It's just well, that's why you're here because I've been trying for two days to figure out how to do this interview uh, without completely. It's like a tidal wave almost of stuff. Yeah. It's it's absolutely amazing. It's a a massive incursion of a paranormal energy into the human world. And, you know, I thought to myself when she, when Mary went down and first went down into that tomb, I thought of some, some rather disconnected things uh, in my own life. Uh, as I discussed in one of my books, I believe a new world I spent, a good bit of time experiencing a parallel universe and um there uh the the and in england there's the two children of wolf pit who came out of another world 
one of them, the little boy died and uh, the little girl lived on. Uh, this is in the, in the 14, uh, 14th century, lived on for years. And um, uh, so there is some other world and maybe more than one other world folded up in this whole reality that we live in. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, it, it seems to me that Mary entered it. And I know from personal experience that that can be extremely dangerous because they, they attacked me after I did this and I lost about a third of the sight in my right eye as a result of this. Attack. Oh my. So, you know, it, it's a serious business and it's entirely real. We live in this lunatic world where reality is in, we are in denial about reality. We, we, it's called the secular world and it came about after the enlightenment. And we have decided to believe only in the parts of reality that we can control. And what because, we can see. And, and see. But the truth is, this is only a little corner. And you guys, you guys went into the bigger world for a while in this journey of yours. We did. It fabulously interesting. And the book and it, was, it was very confusing to live it because it didn't go in any chronological order either. And we did keep splitting off and things kept changing. When we first started talking and researching Mary Heath, she lived to be 80. And then all of a sudden we're in a reality where she died at 28. And we're like, well, if it keeps jumping and we, it was, everything was still ch changing and facts were changing and times were changing and, and situations up until the time we finished the book even. And we're like, how are we going to even bring this book out if it keeps changing? You know? Okay, someone... <laughs> You take your choice as to who wants to start, has got to unpack this apparent journey along different timelines as you were writing the book, a book which was written on the borderland between realities, in my opinion. But before we do that, we're going to take one of those marvelous little breaks that our subscribers, after all, don't have to endure. But don't endure it. Instead, why don't you get a copy of them or Communion or one of my other books? And because this show doesn't really have outside advertising, we just advertise Unknown Country and its offerings. And, uh, and even better, subscribe to the site. We'll be right back. Okay, we're back, and we're with Graham Phillips and Jody Russell. They're both, surprisingly enough, still here. They haven't disappeared into a parallel universe yet. Let's hope not. <laughs> well on their way. Jody especially has the heart of the rose. Uh, what do you... No, I don't want to digress now. Let's go back to the changing facts of the story and what that was like to experience. And how did it actually, like you said, Mary was 80 in, at one point and then died in, at 28 in another. Tell us about that. Yeah, Graham. Well, I'll kind of best tell it how it started. We, wanted, we knew about this 
this stone that Jodie just showed called the Heart of the Rose. We knew it was supposed to, that, that's what Mary found in the tomb. It's supposed to have miraculous powers. We decided let's go in search of this because we knew there was clues. To begin this search, we ended up going, we thought we'd start at the beginning. We went to the tomb that Mary had gone to and found this a couple of miles north of Bidolf Grange, which is now not a mound anymore, but just the inside sort of stone chamber. We went there and it was a beautiful sunny day and the two of us were there. And the moment we arrived, well, very shortly after, this cloud kind of came over us and it was literally just over us, really, and the, the immediate countryside. And it started pouring. There was a complete uh, downpour. There was thunder, lightning, wind. Oh, was wind. I was filming all this at the time because I was just filming the, the, the tomb. And but the, the countryside around, there was still sun shining and completely normal. There was even cows still standing up, and they normally sit, you know, uh, lie down or whatever you call it, on the ground when there's rain. But there was no rain within a quarter of a mile of where we were. And this went on for about five minutes and then just abruptly stopped. Later, when we looked at the video, there's a, a ball of light that seems to shoot from the tomb and across the road opposite. We had it examined by experts and they said oh, it might be something wrong with the camera. Perhaps it's ball lightning. Whatever it was, for all this to happen just as we were there, we thought that's just weird. When we got back to Bidolf Grange, that's when we noticed the first change of universes, whatever you want to call it, the change of reality. We knew that the fire at Bidolf Grange had happened in 1897. Suddenly, we were talking about it, and everyone said, no, it happened in 1896. And we knew it had happened in 1897. We'd been researching it for some time. That was the first thing we realised had changed. Judy then mentioned about Mary Heath. We knew that she lived until... She actually eventually, in the, res in the research that we'd been doing over the years... We knew that in a, after the fire, which we thought was 897, she um, she moved to America, to California, to Oxnard. Um, and we would have been doing a lot of research there with other people to try and find out, you know, where she'd ended up living. But now suddenly they said, no, 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 Mary Heath died in 1872. Um, we went to the church to try and find her too. It wasn't there, but a couple of about... Um, Last year, about in the summer of last year, uh, no, it wasn't autumn of last year, we went to that church and there was a great big tomb there for Mary Heath that had never been there before. Oh I know a lot of people who had been there still who had said, no, there was nothing like that there. Oh, but Jody, oh, I mean, when we were in the church, weird stuff. Well, oh, no, it was massive. And every time we went to the church, you know, it would be closed. And, and then when this time we were going, oh, it's open so we walked in nobody was around and we and the, and lo and behold this massive tomb with this angel with massive wings is in the corner dedicated to mary heath and we're like how can we ever miss that and then the and then the, the but then the door kept closing and and opening and the lights kept flicking on and off it was just really <laughs> quite the experience and a lot of people say we've been to that church many times many years and never have found Mary Heath's grave ever. We just assumed that because she died in London that she was buried down there. So other people have been in the church and not seen the tomb as well. Yeah, Graham himself had been in there before. 
How yeah. many of the people that we know? Is the tomb there it, now? If you went there just, now, would you see it? Or do you know? Yes, it's there now, yeah. Well, if it was just us. We're in this right universe. Well, I'm going to be in England in October. I'm going to go and see if I see the tomb. Yes. You should, yeah. you should get, in, get together with Graham and he'll take you to all the places. There They're was all other in a matter of miles. There was yeah, other complete places that appeared from nowhere. I mean, what about, we? because we were interested in the Alice in Wonderland story, we looked to see if there was an Alice in Wonderland museum or anything like that anywhere in the country, and there wasn't one. There's nothing to do with it, really, a few little things. But when we went to a town called Telford, we were driving around looking for somebody we were going to go and interview, and then suddenly this, this sign appeared in front of us that wasn't there the last time we went down this street, saying the Alice... The Alice in Wonderland experience is a great big Disney-like theme park to it. <laughs> of all the different things to do with the, you know, there's there's rides to do with Alice's adventures and all that, but that wasn't there before. And it was supposedly there had been there for years, and no one's going. We've never heard of it. <laughs> and what about that cafe that appeared from nowhere? Right, that's that was the same day we went yeah. and we went to Stafford, and then all of a sudden. Graham would just say, well, okay, that would be great if we have another coincidence. And he snapped his fingers. Got to be careful of snapping your fingers, Graham. And all of a sudden, we turn the corner, and there's a cafe called the Mad Hatter's Cafe. And it's was, it was like, that had never been there. And it's not there now. Oh, it's not there so, now. Do you have any idea of what you're doing in the other universe at the present time? <laughs> I hope they're Are not having as much fun to me about a book and say about the book and, and, and not describing the tomb or the uh, the theme park or the Mad Hatter's Cafe or anything. They must have written a different book. <laughs> right, exactly. And I will have not asked about them because I read a different version of the book. Right. Uh, I think that's quite possible. I think it's, you know, this is the thing that people, people want the world that they live in to be something that they understand. And I don't blame them. I feel the same way. We all do. But the truth is, we don't understand it. No, not And not above good. all, we don't understand this very new thing between our ears. It's only a couple of hundred thousand years old, the brain, the human brain. It contains half as many neurons in one brain as there are stars in this whole universe. Mm. A trillion neurons two trillion stars. This brain is really big. And, and they say we're only using 10% of it, really. Oh, no, that's not true. That's a that's a, a, a folktale. Oh, really? We actually, oh, yeah. I okay, studied, I'm glad to hear I, that. I, I study <laughs> neuro, modern neurology very extensively, and uh, we we do use our brain very, very, it's a very interesting process what goes on in the brain, but it's far more than ten percent. We don't have, we haven't abandoned most of our brain at all. Oh, good, that's great news. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know it's a, it's extremely complex. And but then uh, the consciousness is a whole different concept, right? When you well, that's an interesting thing because the brain appears to be an interface between the physical world and another world. That is to say, consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so many people don't want that to be true. But the more neurology, the deeper we go into neurology, the more mysterious consciousness becomes. And it, right at the present time, 
even some very materialistic neurologists are beginning to to agree that we have not understood and 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 don't have really any any clue as to a physical seat of consciousness and and probably because there isn't one um we're plugged into something only your plugs are loose you guys <laughs> I, I kind of like them that way <laughs> <laughs> so how did how did you feel when you began to now let me go back did this did these timeline shifts start uh before or after you found the heart of rose oh way before they way stopped before. after we found it stopped after you found yeah it. how did we that make was on the 13th of october last year we found that and it hasn't happened since where did you find it precisely well, we, fought, we, we there were these paintings that uh, were left behind by the group, and we managed to solve the clues. I won't bother going into all that. Um, but, but also we, Mary's tomb was one of the clues too, Graham. Right? Oh, yeah. That would tell you one of the clues was Mary's tomb. It had these two big angels on it, and there were two big rocks nearby known as the angels, big sort of um, towering rock formations. With so a dove. And there was a dove above these angels, and it's called the uh, the Dovedale. Is the name you know a few miles from Bidov, where these angel rocks were. And it was down there that there was a cave. One of the paintings showed this very cave. And when we were going there, I mean, well, <laughs> you tell me what, what happened when we got when we were going there. Oh well, we knew that we 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 wanted to get to a pub because we lost Wi-Fi service, and we knew that there was a pub called the Mermaid Pub. And so we we were as we were driving there, we went through this really thick fog where we could hardly see, and we couldn't find the turnoff. And when we got there, it wasn't called the Mermaid Pub anymore. And we're like, well, well we just checked this like 15 minutes ago online. It was there, and they're going, it's never been the Mermaid Pub. It's been this forever and stuff. And then we're going, oh, we'll stop and we'll get some lunch and we'll kind of figure out what we're going to do. And all of a sudden we're going, they're going, well, you, are you going to put your order in now? Because we're, we're the kitchen's closing. We're like, and then we looked at our clock. We lost three hours going through this fog that only was maybe 10 minutes at, at the most. Couldn't have been more. Couldn't even been more than that. So all of a sudden we had a time slip. Yeah, well, you, you had more than a time slip. You went between universes in yes. that fog. Well, this pub uh, now, is now called something completely different, the, 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 the old oak. But it was then that we got to where this um, cave was. Yeah. And when we got there, I mean, it got even weirder. You went from we, one universe to another. It was so almost then, like we had to be in between two universes for, to, for all of these circumstances to line up. And we would just bounce from one to the other. It make you think what we have lost the knowledge, the lost knowledge, because here we are, three people talking about this extraordinary experience of slipping between realities, being taken between realities. And um, uh, most people just don't believe this is even possible now. I think it happens to us all the time if we're, if we're really aware of it. I uh, just on little simple things like, well, where, I know I put my keys there. Now my keys aren't there. You know, yeah. for instance, I think that I think it happens just minutely. But I think if we really open up and, and, and read the landscape, as we call it, 
uh, I think it's happening and, you know, and I think it guides us in, in, in interesting ways if we allow it to. Well, uh, you know, I'll, I'll give you an example of it happening in my life this morning. And I'm sure everyone listening has these experiences all the time. It's nothing special. Um, I go, I swim in the mornings early, it's six, um, 6.30 sometimes. And um, to swim, you you require to, you have to make a re reservation at the pool and you require showing a card as you go in. And I've had trouble with the card. The card keeps disappearing. Um, <laughs> And uh, I went a few days ago, and the card wasn't in my swim bag. I So I got in without it, and I got a new card. Put the card and the new card in the swim bag. Then when I opened the swim bag to go swimming, the next two days later, I had two cards in the swim bag. <laughs> uh, in the oh, good. Well, now right. I got two cards in the swim bag. Uh, I can't go wrong. Today, when I went to swim, there's only one card in the swim bag now. See, I haven't. You know, this is, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm saying this little humble thing. And Anne, back on in the old days on Unknown Country, she's got a great diary entry called Dryer Sheets about disappearing and reappearing dryer sheets. And this is an ordinary part of life that we. Deny is ordinary. So what are we? Are we slipping between timelines and between this, um, I uh, or, or between universes entirely? In your cases, it seems much more dramatic. I mean, the place is called the mermaid in one universe and what, the old oak in another? The old oak. In another. I mean, that's, that's not just like a disappearing or reappearing swim card. That's major. <laughs> Well, well and it's just go ahead, Ryan. No, yeah, go. Go ahead. Okay. I was going to say there's a place where we, we went to. We didn't even put this in the book because it we didn't. There's loads of things that happened where we couldn't put in the book because it just didn't fit the actual main story of searching for this stone. But there's a place called Abbots Bromley, which isn't too far from Birmingham in central England, which we went to because it was connected with the whole um, Heath family. Um, so we wanted we went there anyway. Every year on on uh, May Day they have um, Morris dancers. You know, the traditional English dancers that yeah, oh, absolutely. around and things and bells on them and stuff. And they have lots of them. And we went there once and they made Jodie the um, the May Queen. They had, they had picked her up and they, you know, took her around the place and she was a guest oh, of honour. I know, it was we a lot. We went back the following year. Now, this is the period when we're doing all this kind of research. Went back the following year and there was no, no Morris men dancing around. They have Morris said, oh, no, no, we never have Morris men here. It's like and they, they said, we went to this pub where the Morris men always go and drink. And they said, no, we don't have Morris dancers here. Never have had. We thought they were having us on, but nobody in the nobody turned up. Nobody in the village knew about it. The following year, we went back again, and there was hundreds of Morris people. We've always had them. <laughs> and then the year after that, this is like how long it's taken us to do all this research, really. The year after that... There weren't any, and we showed photographs of us dancing with Morris people and Jodie being carried around by them to the people of the village, and they said, oh, that's spooky, or oh, we don't want to talk about that. And that's the same time with the Alice Gate, where the, where the girl is supposed oh, to disappear. No, so, tell no, about no, the Alice no, Gate. Wait, we're, getting, we're moving too we're fast. Moving I, know, like... I have to, folks, I hope you're having as much fun as I am. <laughs> I'm just rolling with this at this point. <laughs> Uh, what is the Morris, the gate, the Alice gate? Graham. 
God, you tell them, Jody. No, you, you go ahead. No, no, go on. You tell <laughs> them. Oh, no. Don't, don't argue. Jody, you're elected. You tell us. Well, there's, there's supposedly this gate in the Victorian era again where this, these young girls would go through and just disappear and never come back. Right. And, and it's back. literally right by in the churchyard where all these Morris dancers are supposed to be about. So it, this, so it seems like this, it's almost like this town is like a bit of a porthole. There's like a wormhole where, where different things happen. And what is this town called again? Abbott's Abbot Bromley. Bromley. Abbot's One time Bromley. when we went to this gate where these girls in Victorian hunts are supposed to disappear, we were there and this family, this little girl came running down the path and her mother was saying to her, um, Alice, Alice. And we thought, that's weird. I mean, she was a little yeah. girl, but in modern clothes. She wasn't obviously Alice in Wonderland, but she did look like her with the long blonde hair. And then there was the mother and a couple of boys, I think, came behind. Those two boys, yeah. And we started saying something to them. They just completely looked through us if we, if we didn't like exist. Like we weren't even, like we didn't even exist. Not, the, no, they no, 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 knew us. that we were there. And then they started to have, have they, they got down on a grave and started to have a picnic on a grave, which is the sort of thing they used to do in Victorian times. They'd have a picnic on the grave of their great-grandparents or whatever. And we went up to them and said, is this usual? They totally ignored us. They weren't being funny and ignoring us. They couldn't see us. And then we just watched literally over them like this. And without them taking any notice, they were chatting away about things and happy, dancing around and whatever. And then they left. I, I, I was going to get out and sort of touch the lady on the head to see if she, she felt it, but thought if she did, I'd probably be that arrested. Would her out a little bit much. <laughs> There'd be a hand coming from nowhere. About? So yes, uh, other universes. Yeah, so anyway, you did ask about what happened uh, when we found the stone. Well, after we'd gone through mm -hmm. this mist and time had been lost and this pub had changed its name, we got to this cave where the stone was supposedly hidden if we'd have got the, all the clues sold, right? And it was, it was like a cavern inside it, but there was a great big hole in the roof where the, where the cave roof must have collapsed years ago. And outside were all these trees and bushes and stuff above us, about 20 feet above us. So it was a great big hole about 20 or 30 feet across, about 20 feet high cave walls. And we were we thought that the only place that a stone like that could be hidden in the cave was in one of these crevices that was kind of up higher up in the walls. In there was like a kind of recess, a natural recess in the wall itself about you know four or five feet wide and maybe three feet deep and there was all these cracks further up we thought somebody could have wedged it in there but how are we going to get it at that moment we then get a storm again it had started with a storm it ended with a storm suddenly out of nowhere this storm took place thunder lightning and um the rain started pouring down so badly that within a few minutes it was cascading down the walls and at one point, there was like this flash of lightning. And it really looked like they probably made up of shadows from the trees outside. It really looked like there was a figure like with raised wings, like an angel shadow standing against the other wall. And at that moment, there was a massive crash of thunder and the rain stopped. Within a few minutes, it was dry. The sun was back out. And when we looked on the floor at the bottom of this crevice where there where this like angel figure had been, we saw we on the floor there was the the stone that Jody's got there, yeah. and it was just literally lying on the floor. I mean, it must have been washed down from these crevices by the rain that just so happened to have 
happened then. What was amazing also is we realized that it was the 13th of October. It was exactly 150 years since the death of Mary Heath, if that meant something, to the day. The other Mary Heath. The, the Mary Heath. Yeah, see how confusing it can get. <laughs> <laughs> this the is other one. I don't know where the other one died. The other one's still in Oxnard. <laughs> Have you gone to Oxnard, Jody, perhaps to find her? See if you could we find her. We did years ago and we couldn't. We, it was a dead end. So, yeah, we did that. So, you're not in this universe. It's a dead end. Mm -hmm. I wonder if I went, what would happen? Right? Because maybe we're. Maybe we're in you know, bridging between the universes right now without knowing it. We could be. We could be. Oh, when you play this tape back, so they were mean as hell. Me right here. I, I learned how to move physically between the universes, oh. and boy, that was not wanted. And I think it's because it's an it's an imbalance that my theory. I mean, I have no idea. Sometimes I think the people on the other side find me extremely annoying, and in any case. <laughs> Uh, I think it's because there's probably already a Whitley in the universe I went to, and two of them won't do, and no. they basically just got rid of me. Um, that would make sense. Well, yeah. think about us. There was none versions of us where we ended up. But presumably, maybe if we changed brains, at least we had the same clothes on. You know, it's very interesting the way these storms and fogs and things seem to it seem to uh uh precede the movement your your movement from one reality to another uh and um i wonder i think i'm gonna not take another break this is just too much fun i <laughs> I, I i don't want to if you want to drink a glass of water or something graham go ahead i noticed you drank one earlier um yeah so uh it's almost so, like there has to be like a shift in the frequency, like nature kind of sh changes it yeah, for something, something like to, to awaken or to open. I mean, it gets even weirder because we would, we would have situations almost like there's a patchwork universe where like with the date, the date of the fire being from 97 to 96, some people remember it as 96 and some people remember it as 97. So it's, it's, we, that's almost like it merged and it kind of patched itself on. You know, here's something quite weird uh, uh, that somehow in some weird way fits that. Uh, I went, uh, I was, I'm often in a very unstable state. And I think every, anytime you start to move between universes, it stays like that. You become an unstable presence. So I was driving up to the grocery store um, and I noticed that a street that is always 26th Street, which I cross on the way up to the grocery store, and I understand I've lived here for a long time, nearly 20 years, there are no secrets on the street I'm talking about to me. And suddenly the sign said 27th Street, and I thought, what? It can't be ah. true. It's not 27th, it's 26th. Right. Then I looked again, and it was 26th again. What is this number seven? I noticed that it figures in your experiences too. It is the number of completion. It's a complete octave. Uh, seven features in our thing, does it? Yeah. Well, you you mentioned uh, uh, 
how did you mention the no, number seven? It, it, it was eighteen ninety seven. Yeah, and he died in eighteen ninety six with a fire. Eighteen ninety six and twenty sixth Street and twenty seven. Right in the seven. Yeah. Oh, I seven. see what you're saying. You yeah, we have seven. Change. There's some you've, kind oh, of. Wow. In other words, th this there's, it's there's something here, that we don't understand. It could about. really send somebody crazy. That's the thing, and I think a lot of people might think they're crazy, but it's actually happening for real. Well, you exactly. Know. Of course, yeah. Well, you go to a you, you go you go to a, a a traditional Morris dance that's been happening for years. One year, and you go back the next year, nobody's ever heard of it. That would that would make you feel fairly crazy, right? <laughs> they yeah. thought we were really crazy. <laughs> some people believe that crop circles. I've never investigated them, so I don't know if they're real or not. But some people say, well, crop circles are a way some kind of alien beings are trying to communicate with us. Maybe what we're talking about here is some kind of communication which is so far beyond us it ends up as changing of reality. I mean, that sounds maybe nuts. so. I mean, and, and I certainly know that after we were doing this, I started to get dreams. I mean, Jody has visions when she does meditation that could help us along sometimes. And I and I didn't put this in the book, but I started to get like a, a lady in Victorian clothes appearing at the end of my bed in lucid dreams and very lucid. I could even talk to her, but she normally kind of just looked back at me. And I thought she might have been Laura Heath. That was Mary Heath's um, sister-in-law. And I said once to her, I said, you seem to be real, but it's not really Laura Heath, is it? And she put into my mind, I said, well, she said, I'm just a construct. So I thought, oh, that'll do. I mean, in other words, whatever she really looked like, God knows. Perhaps my brain couldn't. Perhaps she has no physical form. I don't know. So... So I don't know what's behind this, but there's certainly something seemed to be guiding us. But unlike what had happened to you, we never we never got anything horrible happen to us. Nothing hurt us in any way. Well, we yeah. did have the situations where there was this roundabout that every time we'd go around it, there would be oh. these huge buses or cars that would all of a sudden appear and nearly hit us. So we ended up calling it instead of the Bumita Triangle, it was our Bumita Roundabout. Because, and we're like, okay, Graham, be careful. Because and and they would come from nowhere. We a lot. We'd suddenly find ourselves in a universe where they drove on the other side of the road or something. Yeah. And then it switched back. So it can be dangerous, you know, because you're losing. You course. lose your. You know you. But we health. were probably saved. But I mean, that time we almost crashed into that bus. I mean, perhaps we had something looking after us rather than putting us in danger. Right. Right. I we're not dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. It, it, uh, well, what happened in my case was I went into this other universe physically twice. Okay. I didn't do it on purpose. It just happened. And uh, then when I started trying to go in again, they came out after me. Basically. So how did, how did you figure out? Oh, how they to came across to here. What? They came what happened? Oh, this well, my, I think my listeners know the story. I'm not sure, but I, I'll tell it again over just a couple of minutes. Um, I was in bed one morning. I, I was just about to get up, and uh, I started to s sit up, and I was suddenly, instead of being in bed, it was about 6 o'clock in the morning, 6.30. must have been in the summertime because it was already light. Uh, I was riding a bicycle, 
down the street, down Montana Avenue, just with no, there was no change whatsoever. One second I was in the bed and the other second I was riding a bike and it, it uh -huh. wasn't my bike, but I was very familiar with it at the same time. I knew it was, it, it had a different shifting system and it was a, a nicer bike, a cooler bike than mine. And as I rode along, I saw that the street lights functioned differently. In other words, it, it, at the end of the street of Montana Avenue, which I, this happened on, there's a street called Ocean Avenue, then a bluff, and then the Pacific Ocean. I know exactly place. that road, yeah. Yeah, you, know, you probably know it well. And uh, I'm riding along, and instead of the red, yellow, green street light, there are two arrows facing in each direction. Because this Montana tees into uh, ocean. And if your arrow was green, that meant you could turn that way. And if it was red, you couldn't. Mm. And uh, it was a different way of doing streetlights. It's just as good and it's just different. And so I was so astonished by this. I reached into my pocket. Notice I already knew I had a cell phone. And I called a friend in Texas, an old friend to tell him that I was actually in a parallel universe. And I described the streetlights to him. And he says to me, well, you're not telling me anything I don't know. And I thought, of course I'm not. I'm calling him in the parallel universe. It, he, that's the universe he was in. <laughs> <laughs> he lived in it too. He's like, what do you mean? So that's I where said, I well, live. <laughs> and I said, well, I guess not. And at that moment, I was back in my room. Wow. The next time happened about 10 minutes later, I was starting to get up. I was trying to process this. And suddenly I was driving a car and it was my car, but it had a different interior. It was a Prius like I had at the time um, and a different interior. And I thought, oh boy, now I've got this. I'm in a car. I knew where I, I knew I was not in this universe by this time. Not, I'm, I'm slow, but not that slow. And so uh, I'm driving along and I'm thinking, where am I going to go? I'm going to go up the Pacific Coast Highway in this other world. I'm going to look all around. I've got a car. Right. So I, I turn onto Ocean and I'm immediately stopped by a policeman who takes me off into a side, uh, little side kind of cul-de-sac that is not in this world. It's a different we don't have that cul-de-sac at that place in, in this world. Hmm. And he has a clipboard with him. He's dressed in blue, dark blue clothes with a dark blue baseball cap on. And I perceive him as being a policeman. Only he has a very strange pointed face. He doesn't look quite human, but close. And he has a clipboard and he says, we need to be sure that you know the rules of the road here. Oh, wow. And I said, oh, I'm sure I do, because I've been driving a long time. He hands me the clipboard, and he says, well, fine, fill out this form or answer these questions. And he hands me the clipboard. I look at it. It's not in English, Chinese, Greek, any known. It's a very complex series of hieroglyphs. I've seen them before the, with the visitors, but I can't read them. So I can't answer the questions. Right. And I say, I'm sorry, I can't read this. And instantly I'm back in my apartment. Wow, that's um, fascinating. Wow. That's almost like so that. You're telling you're 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 speaking, you're 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 
talking to the speaking to the converted here. Right. I believe you, you guys are definitely loosey goosey in between the universes, and it happened because of this effort that you made. And now we're going to go into the the third section of the show in a moment, and I'm I want to talk now and, and get into Arthur and Morgan Le Fay and what was happening so very long ago in 500 AD and why this the powers that existed then are still echoing and resonating in the world in such a way that two people who certainly don't expect to find that the mermaid no longer exists end up in the old oak free dreamlanders thank you so much for being with us and we'll see you as always next week i love you so and i'm so grateful tell your friends about this show there's nothing like it in the world this is a unique show and it's so yeah. much fun so we'll see you next week subscribers will keep on keeping on We're talking to Graham Phillips, Jody Russell about their book, Strange Fate, uh, strangefate.org or? Dot net. Dot net, that's right. Strangefate.net. And uh, the book, of course, is available and you can read it. And it's it's a, it's a delightful read. Uh, it's I, available on Amazon. Please, yeah. Available on Amazon. And it, it reads, it's not, it's, it's, it's a story. And it's obviously a wonderful story. What a story, guys. My gosh. Anyway, uh, you can just sink into this story, and it's a wonderful place to go. And if you're like me, you're going to end up in the same places that they went as soon as you get to England. Because I travel around. I travel to England a lot, and I travel around all kinds of places. I'm very peripatetic. And... Um, I don't drive, so it's a little inconvenient, but that's okay. I, I You talk about roundabouts. Right. Uh, I, I would never drive in England. Oh, but. England is so confusing to drive because of that. Yeah. Well, the roundabouts and the, and the left-hand drive and the fact that nobody except you is confused in any way whatsoever, and they're all racing around at breakneck speed in roads that appear to be about four feet wide. Yeah, there may be chariots <laughs> or something. <laughs> right. And then you, you get to a roundabout and the other cars are going around so fast you can't see them. And you We're creep into the roundabout and you end up in the middle of the roundabout driving slowly around and around and around in a circle because you can't figure out where to get out. Uh, well, know, thank goodness Graham has a really small car because some of these country lanes, you can only literally get one car down. If you meet another car, one of you has to back down the lane. It's Yeah, crazy. I wonder often about the people who are driving around in rollers and jags and things. Right? All of my friends and every single friend I have in England has tiny cars yep. for that reason. For that reason. Because they're all, they all live, they're not Londoners. They all live in rural areas. And so, you know, they're, they're often in, in those narrow lanes. Okay, now let's go on. Take us back, if you will, to what this world was like in 500 AD, which is, after all, when the heart of the rose was made. Okay, right. 
500 AD in Britain was the time when King Arthur is said to have lived. The Roman Empire had collapsed and Britain had reverted to its old Celtic ways um, that were there before the Romans were here. Now, the Celts and their predecessors were the ones that built these stone circles. Originally, they were called the megalithic people and they built things like Stonehenge and other monuments about uh, four and a half thousand years ago. The Celts who arrived in Britain from Europe uh, of some centuries later, they carried on building some of these stone circles. They're the priesthood of these ancient megalithic people, as they're known, became the Druids. And the Druids were the priesthood and the libraries of knowledge of the Celtic people. The Romans came, they had to, um, they fled to Ireland that was never conquered by the Romans. When the Romans left in the 400s, they came back to Britain and a new kind of Druidic priesthood began. And its leaders were people like the, um, the mythological Merlin from the King Arthur tales. In fact, I've written books about Merlin to show that he wasn't invented. He was a real figure that existed around 500 AD. Now, and so was Arthur. So, yeah, but can you tell us a little bit about the difference between the real Arthur and the Arthur of legend, of modern legend? Because there's a quite a difference. Yeah, yeah the Arthur of legend, because the legends were written down around about between 11 and 1300 AD, they described the warriors of Arthur as knights in armor, like you would imagine from the medieval period, living in huge Gothic castles. But in reality, when you find the historical documents that relate to a real warrior called Arthur who united the Britons against invaders around 500 AD, the warriors were dressed more like Romans uh, than they were like, there was no, they hadn't invented plate armor at that point. And the castles were not these huge, great stone Gothic castles of the medieval period. They were uh, wooden stockades. And the, the, the palaces, the real Camelot, would have been more like uh, a Roman villa, than a, a fortified Roman villa. So they were very different. The reason why in the medieval period they actually portrayed Arthur in their time is they had no idea. They hadn't got archaeology then. They didn't know what the knights had looked like. If you actually look at a picture of the crucifixion painted during the Middle Ages, they have Jesus surrounded by Roman soldiers dressed in plate armor like jousting knights. They had no idea what they looked like at that point. Yeah. So that's what the historical Arthurian period was like. And you've got these Druids, kind of like real-life Merlins, people, advisors, people who were believed to be able to do um, mystical things as well as healers who were basically um, advisors to the Celtic chieftains throughout the country. One of these was, a, there was as many women as men. The Celtic society was one of the few societies in the world in history which had been, they weren't prejudiced. Men and women could rule. I mean, there's the famous Queen Boudicca who revolted against Rome in Britain. She led the armies. There were women warriors. Women and men were equal. And one of these druid S's or druids was a character called Morgana, who became Morgan Le Fay in the later legends. But of course, in the medieval period, um, the writers wanted to make, oh, women can't have power. If they have power, they've got to be wicked witches, which is what Morgan Le Fay came as being the person who tried to bring down Arthur. But in the earlier stories that still survive in Welsh literature, you see that Morgana is in fact a well-respected 
Enchantress and Druidess. And it was in that tomb that uh, Little Mary crawled into, which is known as the Bridestones, after a goddess called Bride, who was the goddess of fate and the changing of fate. It was in that tomb that the uh, that Morg the historical Morgana seems to have been buried. So the character who is behind the story of Morgan the Fay, the woman called Morgana, who was uh, the last of the high Druidesses before Christianity came to Britain, was in fact the person who owned that heart of the Rose Stone that Mary later found. And also at Brightstones, going back to the storm when we saw the orb, we discovered too that Bride is, is known to be a white orb. Yeah, and Morgana was the high priestess, if you like, of this goddess of fate, oh Bride. So, and she wasn't at all in any way a... Uh, uh, wicked witch. A wicked witch, no. no and not at all. She was... All the stories be, of Welsh legends tell about how yeah, wonderful she is. That I recall someone named Morgan. It, 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 it's somewhere in this story... I'm not oh yes, more uh, yeah. Um, yeah, that's complete coincidence. It's uh, Evelyn de Morgan, the painter who who was a friend of Jane Morris, the person who hid the stone, was the one who painted these pictures of Jane Morris with the clues in that led to where that stone was. Her name was Evelyn de Morgan. That is a strange coincidence. Yeah. Maybe it's not a coincidence. Maybe this is a story with no coincidences. Well. Um, well, you know, actually, it, that is, I I've never really thought about it quite. I know, much, right? But if you Her think about it, somebody maybe, calls maybe Morgan, it was Morgana reincarnated. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Father Morgana means, incidentally, folks, it means uh, fairy fate. Fairy fate. And, uh, uh, the, you know, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a title or a description as well as a name. I wonder, you say that you know that Marilyn existed. I wonder if Morgana did. Yeah, well, that's not the same historical. I mean, the, the, the legend is that she's buried there and so on and so forth and what she did. I haven't actually found any historical documents when my searching for my King Arthur books that proves that Morgana was real. But then again, the problem is that a lot of the writing about uh, Arthur and the historical figure called Merlin, who was his advisor, these were written later by Christians. And they didn't like right. the fact that women had any power. By this time, women weren't allowed in the priesthood and anything. So they're going to leave her out. Women are hardly mentioned. It's just the men. But my sense is that Morgana might have been a ter terribly important figure in his life. Maybe more so than Merlin, could it be? The more, uh, basically, the, the, the legends talk about um, a relationship between Merlin and Morgana. Um, and, um, but I, my own personal belief is, as the, the medieval writers had access to earlier legends about that perhaps no longer exist, almost certainly no longer exist, uh, where they, I mean, they must have had access to them to even invent Morgan, Morgana and creator as Morgan the Fay which, as you say, means the same thing. Morgan, the fairy, basically, the, yeah. the person who has these mystical powers from like another world, the other world of Celtic mythology. And if she is, um, 
they, they must have had access to things about her. That, and for that to happen, she must have been pretty important in Arthur's court or in his inner circle. And I think, yes, they probably did do. Uh, she was important to Arthur, but they knew, well, we've got to include her because the people will know from the legends that she's included with Arthur's uh, you know, entourage. But let's make her evil and let's make her the person who tries to bring him down. Let's make her his half-sister. Mm. You know, uh, it, the word M Morgan Le Fay and fascinates me, the phrase, because the Fata Morgana, of course, is a mirage in, in, in Italy and uh, in Hungary and different places. A mirage is called a fairy Morgan, a Fata Morgana. Do you mean like a mirage you get in a desert? Yeah, exactly. Really? I didn't know mm. that. I didn't know that. Mm, that's really interesting. Wow. It's a well, the thing is, the Morgana, that's the painting, the final painting that led us to that uh, cave where we found the stone, shows um, one of Arthur's knights, uh, Gawain, kneeling in front of Morgana, who's showing him an entranceway to um, holding back a, a veil or a curtain, showing him an entrance to another world where it's all beautiful and sunshine and so forth. And he's in the cave kneeling down and she appears to him with wings like an angel, which is kind of like the thing we saw on the wall of the shadow. Hmm. Um, but she always appears to have wings, um, which is unusual. We don't know why most Celtic deities and, and characters in Celtic legend and don't have wings. But in the stories of Morgana, she is always represented with wings. She's supposed to be about to fly, obviously. But, um, <laughs> obviously. You know, of course, the story of Plato's cave. Um, oh, the shadows on the wall, yeah. That story, folks, is this, that we are seated in a sort of theater that's in a cave. We're chained to our seats and we cannot move. And behind us, there is a great shining light and it is shining on events uh, that are that are depicted on the in in the in the it's illuminating events that we only see as shadows on a screen in front of us we don't see reality at all but sometimes somebody slips out of those chains and i think that's exactly what you guys did you slipped out of the chains and turned around and you didn't see the angel in her purity and her glory as the light pure light that she is probably because you can't but you saw and you moved between worlds suggesting that you are you were touching on one of the great lost human powers that by the time the romans had already long since lost it but not the celts and somehow it still flickers briefly to life when the right people come to certain places and you were the right people and came to a certain place I agree. I, I, I think the ancient civilizations were way more advanced when it comes to this re understanding how reality worked. I think we've kind of lost that. And I think and I think certain places you go to still holds those doorways. 
And when yeah. the right people go there, they they open, you know, when the time is right, when the knowledge is ready to be out there. I mean, whoever thought that we'd live in a world that every other show that you watch is talking about the multiverse and, you know, yeah. time slips and time travel and stuff. When we started being interested in this like 30 years ago, none of that stuff was around, you know? No. So I think people are more acceptable of hearing it now because I think the, we're needing to shift. I think Morgana represents the magic of the feminine and the power mm. of feminine energy. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us a little bit? I know you refer to this in the book many times, uh, that this feminine energy. You were touching a feminine energy. Yes. What, what, what is the difference between that energy and, say, a masculine energy? Well, Graham, that's a good question. <laughs> what is feminine? <laughs> I mean, no, well, I think... I know, but it, it I think basically, the doors. yeah, I th all of these characters, most of these uh, various forms of ancient um, mysticism that the me and I group were trying to tap into concern female deities or female spirits, if you like, not so much deities. They were all like, for example, the Chinese garden, once there, but it's not there anymore. There was a statue of a, uh, a Chinese um, lady of the moon called Shang'e. Now, she is not a moon goddess. She's supposed to be a being who once lived on the moon and came to Earth and had power over fate and fortune. And she was able to transfer people to other worlds, like the moon, in their belief. And this is ancient Chinese philosophy. I mean, now, the, in fact, the Chinese were still um, respect this because they one of their the first chinese rocket to go to the moon was called change um so they still you know appreciate this and every autumn they eat what are called moon cakes um which are like food to celebrate the arrival of the lady of the moon on the earth now okay so this is but the, the in chinese mysticism she was the person who had the power over the gods the power of fate and in China, in, in Celtic mythology, and they built a Celtic glen at um, Bidolf Grange, which consisted of a, um, a sacred spring and a pool and uh, a, a cave there that they'd built. That was sacred to the goddess um, bride or the character bride that I was talking about, of which Morgana was thought to be an incarnation, it would appear. Um, and she had the power over fate and fortune. And they even had a Roman temple recreated underneath Bidolf Grange itself, where they had a big statue of the goddess, the Roman character Fortuna, who, whose name actually gave rise to the name Fortune. She is in charge of fate, fortune, and travel to other times and other worlds in the Roman belief. Although the it was Roman only belief. women who actually seemed to take much notice about worshipping her back then. Which was interesting because so they were bringing in different cultures of the same thing. They're all versions of the same thing. and It's all female because I think the problem is with men. Men are primarily far more aggressive than women. It doesn't mean that women aren't strong and can't beat men at their own game, but it means that men tend to start all the problems off. And you can't have that kind of energy cracking holes between universes. I That's guess. right. Maybe if I had been a woman, I wouldn't have been kicked out. Well, maybe if I wasn't with Jody, I wouldn't have been allowed in at all. Right? <laughs> yeah, maybe not. But 
the three of us have definitely been around the block. Right. <laughs> the uh, the uh, let's let's get back a little bit to the society and their choice of name, mm. because this is this is an indication, in my opinion, that they that they possessed genuine secret knowledge Definitely. from somewhere they got it. Uh, so tell us about the, the society and it's, it's very ancient derivation. And that originated from a, a, a feminine energy as well, right, Graham? Me and Aya. Yeah, the Me and Aya um, was a name for a country in what is now Turkey, ancient Lydia is what the Greeks later called it. It's basically um, along the eastern coast of the Mediterranean in Anatolia. Um, and it was called Meonia, and it was legendary. I mean, ancient Greek writers referred to it once being ruled by a demigoddess, a kind of half-human, half-goddess being called um, Omphali, and she made all sorts of magic stones, each one with a different power. It's almost, I think, I'm sure that... Um, Tolkien took his story of these rings of power and all being divided up and sent all over the over the world from this story because she's supposed to have made various stones of different sizes, some big, some small, and they had different powers. And, um, one. <laughs> and oh yeah, that one of these stones that she would you tell them about that one, Jody. I mean, you no, seriously, there. there goes another storm. We were in that we were research searching down another another avenue when it came to Mary Heath. We were in this church, another huge, massive storm hit. And all of a sudden, things shifted in the church. And there on the shelf was an Amphala stone. And, and basically, one of the stones that Amphala is said to have made is the Delphi Oracle Stone, which is still in Delphi if you visit there today. And the Oracle, a woman in Greek times, ancient Greek times, would sit next to this stone and go off into a trance and tell people's futures and, and give them predictions and so on. Um, a, a stone just like that one, uh, a slightly smaller, was actually on a almost like an altar next to the main altar, on a window ledge thing next to the main altar in the church. And we thought, what is a, a pagan stone doing in a church? Yeah. Well, when we went back there, it wasn't there. Nobody had ever heard of it. We'd kind of gone through a storm, gone into a church where they had an Amphale stone. <laughs> and coming back to how it's what its relevance is, I mean, it was because that happened to us. We began to re we looked into Amphali, found that she made one stone when pink quartz was supposed to be a heart shape that eventually ended up with the Celts, and that's how Morgana got it. Someone you had a teacher, guys, someone you never saw, powerful teacher who who took you through lessons and every storm signifies the beginning of a new lesson. And, oh, and it's interesting because the lessons always came when we hit a dead end. All of a sudden, this new information would come out or some, somebody would send in a, as a clue for us or Graham would stumble across some historical knowledge. Every single time it, it happened, we're going, that's okay. When we get to that point, the information is going to be there. And even as we were writing the book, the information would be there. It was 
phenomenal. Well, so when we would look, we'd look online for information about something, there'd be nothing there. We know, and suddenly there was, it was, oh, there would be pictures everywhere that were, just didn't exist before. I mean, like the picture of Morgana as an angel, and um, and uh, in this cave with uh, Gawain kneeling before her. At one point, that picture never existed. We kind of reached the dead end. We thought, well, we followed all the clues. We know what we're supposed to be looking. We're supposed to be going to this dovetail by these two big angel sta uh, uh, stone pinnacles, but where? And then suddenly we found that the pre-Raphaelites had painted this picture, one of them that was involved in the group, of this, um, of this cave. We'd been looking, we'd been putting in caves in, in Dovedale, we'd been putting in chapels in Dovedale, bridges in Dovedale, in search engines, and we hadn't found anything. Suddenly, this was a well-known painting. And when we got and there, and when we got there, the painting was identical to the cave. So it when is. we got inside the cave, we're like, okay, well, there's there's Gawain kneeling, there's the angel appearing, there's the door opening. It's got to be in this corner. And remember then the hum of bees? We saw heard. Oh them. yeah, the hum of bees. I forgot to mention that one. That's yeah, that happened before the storm, and we're like, that was because that's supposed to happen when you hear the a sound of like a beehive. Is supposedly what you hear before a porthole opens is what they believe in the Rosicrucian. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that buzzing noise. I was checked first of all before everything started and the storm came. I was put my ear up against you were there. I said, it must be bees at the top, you know, outside the, 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 the outs, you know, the top of the mound where the cave is. Um, I mean, it's, and it's sort of, it's somehow the acoustics are making the sound come down the wall. And I went outside and there was nothing there. I mean, I literally hacked my way through brambles to try and get to where it was, but there was no, there was no, um, nothing there, no bees or anything. But I came back down and it was still buzzing. Listen closely, folks, because I mean, I'm talking to my audiences. What we are being taught here is the real meaning of a grail quest. That's why Gawain is there. And this is very, very different from what was appeared in the Middle Ages, in the Arthurian stories of the Middle Ages, when this very real energy had been denied and pushed aside. Graham and Jody were on a grail quest. Mm, it felt like that. Yeah. The, and they have just described to us how to do such a quest and this absolutely magical place known as England is always been a, 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 an excellent place for these quests because of the way the earth energy in England works. That's why the crop formations are there and you can start a quest there in Wiltshire and take it all the way through to to the Grange and beyond, uh, you can. There's all kinds of ways of doing quests in that country, and Graham is once again going slightly out of focus as he has numerous <laughs> times in the show. Do I keep going out of focus? Uh, yeah, I don't know what's happening. <laughs> you know, what, what's happening is it's every time he thinks about the other universe. He goes, he's, he's, he's halfway between. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I have to agree with you, Whitley. Is that Something there's something really magical about England, and it's like I, there's so much history there. Uh, I was never really into history until I went to England. And you, when you walk into a, a, a building that's 
been there for a thousand years, you and you feel history, it starts to talk to you. And I think no yeah. matter what you want to do with your quest, it can be a personal quest. It can be anything. You could, it's That is the place that you could totally do it. I agree. Well, in any case, we heard today, folks, what a real grail quest is about and what it's like and what the energies involved actually were when these quests were being carried out nearly 2,000 years ago. And the whole point of the quest was lost during the Middle Ages. Hmm. But we have come to two people who blundering along and in their lives of curiosity and uh, turned into questers. Uh, they are our Gawains. So guys, I want to thank you for being with us. And Graham, you're going in and out of focus very rapidly now. That's so weird. There's no reason why it should be going oh, It's not weird, folks. My, oh, well, my, my, my viewers and listeners. I embrace the weird. Bring it on. <laughs> exactly. Um, he's... Um, if you disappeared on us entirely, we wouldn't even be, we wouldn't even bat an eye. <laughs> <laughs> but for some of us, would, would, they would still be able to see and hear you, but not all. Because this is an audience full of magical people and magicians of, the very, of a very real kind. Yeah, and we all and, need to come together. It's time for it now. Right, it, time, it is time for it now. And that gets us to the larger issue. Why now is this extraordinary show taking place it's because we are entering a time of great change and great danger and new powers are needed mm -hmm. for mankind to survive and so don't forget folks the grail quest is real the energy is there and it's not just in england it's right here right in you in all of us Graham and Jody, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being with us in this marvelous show. Strange Fate indeed. Strangefate.net. Get the book and just glory in this wonderful journey that they took and are still on. Thank you so thank you. much, Whitley. It's been a pleasure. What a pleasure it has been. All right. Now I have to figure out. Oh, yes. Here we go. Thank you, folks, for being with us as always. And tell your friends about Dreamland and Unknown Country. As I always say, it is unique in the world. And believe me, there is no other podcaster on the planet who could have created this show. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host, and I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.